0: This is To the Island, a podcast about unexpected encounters and accidental explorers, brought to you from Darwin in the top end of Australia. I'm Rosa Allen. Now on with part two of our story of old Nick Kulikovsky. I needed to interview somebody from the family Nick had estranged himself from. He had a sister called Zenia in Denmark, and he had a nephew, Paul, who'd asked Father Michael Protopopov to find Nick for him in Australia. So I asked Father Michael if next time he was in Moscow, he'd pass on a message to Paul. Oh, and it turns out it wasn't the first time Nick's royal connections had hit the headlines either. Journalist Bill Mallor met him in the 1970s
1: pretty early in my career in Australia. And I, I just joined the Sun Herald, which was then the um, biggest selling paper in Australia. It was, a, it was a Sunday paper. And it was early in the week. And it was a slow news day. And, and most of the reporters were in the pub, you know, which is what, what you normally do on a slow news day. But for for some reason, I was sitting in this empty newsroom office when a phone started to ring. I, I went over and picked it up. And a, Quite a well-spoken woman's voice asked if this was the newsroom and would we be interested in paying for an amazing story? Well, you know, we didn't pay for news tips, but I'd been trained, trained on sort of English tabloid-type newspapers, and so I was used to getting calls like that, and, you know, 99% of the time they're, they're nutters. You know, and they haven't got anything anyway. But uh, you always give them a hearing because there's that tiny chance the caller might really have a a big scoop. So I tried to, to coax this this well-spoken lady into telling me what their amazing story was. She said, well, there was living in Sydney a direct descendant, indeed the the great grandson of Tsar Alexander the Third of Russia, and of course a grand nephew of the the ill fated last uh Nicholas, who was murdered along with most of his family after the Communist Revolution. Not not bad, I thought. <laughs> but but if he was so grand, why was the intermediary touting his story to the tabloid media? Well the woman said he'd fallen on hard times. How hard? I thought, well he was actually a labourer and she said he deserved better than that. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, good story. Um so um Would we pay for it? No. This woman said to me, why would he talk to you for nothing? And I said, well, you know, you never know if we wrote about him, maybe somebody might offer him a better job or something. And so she said she'd go off and talk to him and let me know. She gave me an address to go to in D.Y., which is a kind of northern beachside suburb of Sydney. But the, the address where where he was living was definitely not your typical beachside apartment it was you know several streets back from the beach no view tiny rented not well decorated and he answered the door and he was wearing the hawaiian shirt shorts thongs when i sat down to talk he, he cracked open a can of beer He got one of those droopy moustaches that, you know, we all wore back in those days and long sideburns, typical of the time, kind of like Dennis Lilly, you know, when he bowled for Australia. He was quietly spoken and polite. He also had with him in his apartment, he had his longtime girlfriend, whose name was Lindy Lou, and she told me she was a Tahitian dancer. I asked Kulikovsky what his his laboring job was, and he said he was digging ditches for the Sydney Water Board. I said, do your workmates got any idea that they're hobnobbing with royalty? And and he said, nope, they just call me Nick the Jackhammer Operator. Well, oh, great story, you know, great-great-grandson of one Tsar, great-nephew of another, also a descendant, of of course, of the King of Denmark, working as a Sydney waterboard dish digger, living with a Tahitian dancer called Lindy Lou. So what... What did he tell me? You know, well, firstly, he said he was he was opening up for the first time about his life. He took me through the family tree from 1866, when Tsar Alexander III married Princess Dagmar, daughter of King Christian IX of Denmark. We drove out to another northern, northern suburb in an office car, and I, I told the driver to be discreet, because we didn't have permission from the waterboard, but the... The driver and the photographer were as indiscreet as you could possibly get. The driver had pulled up right in front of the trench where Nick was working, and the photographer immediately jumped out and started firing off pictures like crazy. And the rest of the work gang were totally amazed. that Nick, under his safety helmet and his dark glasses, just carried on drilling away.
2: I remember there was a headline in one of the Northern Territory papers that he was the heir to the throne. Well, he certainly wasn't the heir to the throne.
3: not the case that other dynasties that have lost their thrones have the same swirling around them uh, nuttiness that one sometimes sees with Romanovs. My name is Russell Martin and I'm professor of history at Westminster College in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, USA. All these pretenders uh, popping up and so on, and, and even some people who write about them. What's the different between the Romanovs and these other families that have lost their thrones is the tragedy of the Russian Revolution itself and the, the executions, and the, the the many serious and legitimate questions about what happened on July 17, 1918. Um, uh, exactly. What, what, how exactly did those murders happen? Who was murdered? What were done with the bodies? There are no bodies. Even today, we're still concerned about whether those bodies that have been found are authentic or not, so I think it has more to do with the circumstances rather than the Romanovs themselves. Um, the, the revolution uh, captured imaginations; uh, the way, frankly, the French Revolution did too, because of the tragedy, because of the emotions, because of the the involvement of small children getting getting murdered in horrific ways. It operates on the mind, I think.
0: Olga, Leonid's grandmother, was born into a life of incredible splendour in a time of repression and political turmoil. And perhaps even more than other royal houses, the pressure to marry equally for the Romanovs was immense. Marrying a non-royal meant you were the end of the royal line and your children wouldn't be considered part of the imperial house. So when she was 19, she married a 33-year-old duke, Peter Alexandrovich of Oldenburg, it's thought he was probably gay, and they lived separate lives. They didn't have children. A couple of years into her unhappy marriage, Olga did meet the love of her life, Nikolai Kulikovsky. He was a military officer, but she couldn't get a divorce. Yet Kulikovsky was hired as an aide de camp in their household. And so they kind of ended up living together, in a way. Since Catherine the Great, there have been detailed laws about who could be in line to the throne and who can't.
3: When you sit down to write a law of succession, you do have to sort of pick who's in and who's out. One of the reasons why the War of the Roses happens is because nobody can decide who's in and who's out, and so anybody with, his, with even a smidge of plantagenet blood is going to sort of put their name forward. But the, uh, having uh, the concept of a uh, ancestor progenitor, emperor progenitor, is a way of saying, only those descended from this person and no one else. So it's a way of restricting and limiting. And if you look at the way laws of succession work in the, in the 19th century in Russia and elsewhere, you know families that are successful, meaning families that have a lot of kids, that have a lot of kids and, and then exponentially grow, this is a, both a good and bad thing. It's good because the family won't die out or is less likely to. Uh, it's a bad thing, though, because you have a lot of airs running around, and that can get, that can get messy.
0: Olga and Nikolai Kulukovsky waited 13 years until they were permitted to marry. In between, there was a failed revolution, the First World War broke out, and then the 1917 October Revolution. The Bolsheviks seized power, and the imperial family and the Tsarist regime was brought to an end forever. Olga and Kulikovsky fled to Denmark.
2: Hello, Rosa. How are you?
0: Good. How are you? I'm good. What's what's it like there in Moscow today?
2: Actually, we have sun, but it's minus 8 Celsius, so it's quite cold. Snow on the ground and nice weather, but cold.
0: (laughs) This is Paul Kulikovsky, Leonid's nephew. I did track him down, and we spoke over a crackly mobile phone connection. But bear with me, because he is important to the story.
2: uh, Paul's saying
0: that the family didn't have contact with Leonid for almost 20 years, that they knew his last address was in Sydney, and that they thought maybe he was upset or rebellious, or didn't want to communicate. Then his mother died, just three months before he did, and they wanted to reconnect and ask him if he wanted to come back to Denmark.
2: It was awful what was reported in the media because there was a, a lot of mistakes, like that he didn't have any money, that he was poor. I mean, we of course
0: again, died, if you can't hear, Paul saying his family was unhappy with the media reports when had died, as well as the inaccuracies about his financial situation. His uncle was never lying unclaimed in a morgue. For one, he had his passport on him, so the family was told within days by the Danish police that he'd died. And he didn't die of a heart attack. It was almost two years before the family received the results of an autopsy from the Northern Territory coroner, which showed Leonid had died of kidney failure. He'd been really sick in the week before.
2: As you said, they didn't bother to check anything.
0: When Leonid's great-uncle Tsar Nicholas and his wife and five children were murdered in 1918, the Bolshevik government didn't immediately confirm it, and many exiled family members didn't want to believe it. And this is where the nuttiness, as historian Russell Martin says, begins to swirl, famously with the Anastasia imposters, one of whom actually met with Olga in 1925. Meanwhile, for some of the real family members living in exile, the laws of succession had to continue. By 1924, Grand Duke Kirill declared himself emperor. And today there are only two members of the Romanov imperial house, Kirill's granddaughter, the Grand Duchess Maria Vladimirovna, and her son. Paul Kulikovsky and members of the Romanov family association dispute the Grand Duchess's claim, but Russell Martin believed otherwise. And I should mention he's an advisor to this imperial house
3: your question earlier about why bother after the revolution. I mean, that's a really good question. And their answer to that was, yeah, we probably shouldn't bother with that. But there was a branch of the family that did bother with that, that thought that its um, identity, its, 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 its own sense of honor required them to observe these laws. And I can tell you that that's not been easy um, to marry equally, to find someone legally eligible to marry to live your personal life in a way that you know you're under a looking glass uh,
0: they married so that they could continue the line that that was really a consideration
3: Maria certainly picked her husband Prince Franz Wilhelm of uh, of Prussia of Hohenzollern prince uh, with the view to the requirements uh, with a view to the requirements of the law Absolutely. I I don't think, and I don't know this personally, but I, I feel pretty confident in saying I don't think she looked beyond the pool of legally eligible candidates for herself when she married.
0: It turns out old Nick's nephew, Paul, is one of the more visible Romanov descendants today. He's the first to actually move back to Russia, and he takes pride in the imperial family's historical legacy and its treasures. At the same time, I'm starting to get an understanding of why somebody might not embrace all of it. Bill Mallor, the journalist, had this impression when he interviewed Leonid.
1: He'd not bothered to claim the title of Duke, and he said, why should I claim a title when it's worth nothing? He said, I'm a labourer. If I put on airs, I would be put down in no uncertain terms. Nor, he said, had he in the past used his family lineage to get a better job. He said he'd had the opportunity to use his name, but until now... I've always been against it. I wrote that he looked like a typical Aussie, contented with his lot. He said that as a labourer, he could have a lot of freedom and, and didn't have to use his brains too much. But perhaps contented wasn't the right word, you know, when I used it. Accepting might have been a better word because, because later in the interview, he sort of said to me, of course I don't like it. You know, I don't like being a labourer, but I've, I've no choice. You have to laugh about it or you would go crazy.
0: By the time Leonid was born in 1943, Denmark was occupied by Nazi Germany, and the Kulikovskis ended up migrating to Canada, which reminded them of Russia. As they were ensconced in the Russian emigre community, their son Guri and his wife separated. And as a young man, Leonid returned to Denmark to live with his mother.
2: There was always a lot of fighting inside the, the emigre community. A lot of conflict going on. And that repeated, I mean, it was going on in Denmark. Paul's
0: saying that the fighting within the Russian emigres was repeated in Canada. And Nick didn't feel at home in his adopted countries. He didn't learn Russian He didn't belong in the Danish community. He didn't really belong in the Russian community. He wanted to start again, on his own terms.
2: And apparently he chose Australia as as a place to go to.
3: Nick loved it here because he could go out in the bush, go walking with his dog. Uh, he'd go down the back and his dog had a little short legs, so he never had a chance of catching a kangaroo but it, it was a good exercise, he'd ch- he chase the kangaroos and, uh, and then wear himself out and come back and uh, it was open country here, no one bothered him.
0: I asked Paul Kulikovsky what family traits he could see in Leonid. He said they're a family of readers. He said they had a family library that they would delve into and Leonid's sister and brother still read every day. He said they were all dog lovers, hunting dogs, lap dogs, mutts. These are the things that you end up inheriting from your family no matter who you are or where you are. They're the riches in which you can find contentment and where you can return to when you want some peace. This episode of To The Island was produced by myself, Rosa Ellen, with theme music by Nick Huggins from Little Lake Records. My website is totheisland.com.au. And there's also some photos of Nick and the town of Catherine there as well, including from Nick's days wearing stubbies and a hard hat, digging ditches for the Sydney waterboard. Thanks very much to Zulia Kamalova for her music as well. A version of this story was played on Radio National's The History Listed program in February 2018. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. Just search for To the Island. See you then.